The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 11. This message was given during the evening service on September 4, 2022, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. Continuing same sermon title as your note sheet says, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Four great marks of suffering. And we are deep into the outline. The further the outline heads down the front side of your note sheet, the deeper into the series it shows. As I've taught you many times before, my outlines are like slinkies. They expand, they expand, and when I finish stuff, they contract. So you can see we're deep into mark number two, as the outline shows below it. Four marks in verse six. Mark number one is in your note sheet. Christian suffering is temporary, meaning only for this life. For Christians, suffering is only for this life. For all other humans, suffering is permanent and eternal. For unsaved humans, suffering is in this life, and then even worse, in eternal hell forever after death. For us as Christians, suffering is only in this life. Four marks. Mark number one, even though now for a little while, as you see in your note sheet, Christian suffering is temporary. Mark number two that we're currently in, fill in the blank. For review, Christian suffering is necessary. Christian suffering is necessary for the Christian. That's Mark number two and verse six, if necessary. Mark number three, you have been distressed. Mark number four, various trials. I describe these marks as four locked doors. Imagine walking down a hallway and seeing four locked doors and a brass or gold nameplate on each of the doors. One door for each of the marks. I consider it locked doors because so few Christians are willing to accept these marks of suffering and to walk through these doors, even though the Bible plainly teaches that suffering is for this life. Christians simply do not want, by and large, to accept that. It reminds me of the promise. We love promises of Jesus. Go back to John, the Gospel of John that we were in this morning. We love to say, oh, the promises of the Lord are so encouraging. True. But how about this promise? John 16. Talking to the disciples in verse 32. John 16, verse 32. Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered. So even the apostles and the disciples in Jesus' day were going to suffer. Each to his own home and to leave me alone, and yet I am alone because the Father is with me. Even Jesus had to suffer. The disciples were going to scatter out of fear, out of the threat of death and persecution. That's what Christ is referring to. Verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, so that you may have peace. Peace is one of the major responses to suffering. And here it is. Here's a promise from Jesus. In the world, not you will. It's present active indicative. You have tribulation. Tribulation is not referring to the seven years of tribulation prophetically after the rapture. 
The word simply is, means flipsis. It's the word for pressure. You have continuous pressure. Present tense means always. Active voice shows um, tense voice and mood. It's a present tense. Voice is active, which means it's not a command. It's just a state of reality. And indicative is the mood, which refers to the fact that this is ongoing as well. It is a state of reality. You have pressure. But take courage, I have overcome the world. As long as you're in the world, you will have suffering. Back to 1 Peter chapter 1. So last Sunday night, I was having a stand as your tour guide, and you were touring these four doors that were unlocking one at a time in verse 6 of 1 Peter 1. And we're about ready to unlock and get some more golden nuggets from this issue of necessity in verse 6. But I've been dancing you around the edges. Why have I been doing that? Because we need some prep. We need some prep because when unpleasant things confront us in the Bible, it is a natural tendency for the average believer when they are faced with the unpleasantness of cross-bearing and some of the difficulties that Christians will face, it is a normal and reoccurring problem for believers to want to convince themselves that they are free to get out from under unpleasantness that's attached to Christianity. That we're free to avoid it, to do what we want. And thus Christians play a game in their mind, and the game in the mind is, I don't have to obey this. I am free to make other choices. So before we dive further in through the doorway of this second mark, I've been taking us on a different journey. Number one under mark number two, necessary means suffering is a continuous reality for the believer. The cry that comes up for believers historically in non-persecuted environments down through the history of the church is, where does it say that I have to suffer? I'm free to avoid suffering. I'm free to do whatever I want. Who says I can't do that? Well, it says right here in verse 6 that it's necessary. We saw in John 16 that it is promised that we will face pressure. Number two, we've seen necessary versus optionality. Suffering is not optional for the believer. We like to convince ourselves that we're free in Christ to do whatever we want and that we can avoid suffering if it makes us feel better. Number three, most believers hold to the false notion they're free in Christ to do almost anything not commanded against as sin in the Bible. It's a form of lawlessness. It's a misunderstanding of how sin operates, and we looked at this last Sunday night. There's a minimalist view. A minimalist means a very narrow view of sin that some Christians have, many Christians have. The idea is this, and I've faced it over the years in many forms and in many contexts. If it's not specifically commanded in the Bible, I don't have to do it. We had a rule years ago. It was just a man-made rule, but we asked our ushers to wear shirts and ties. Obviously, that's not a rule that we're having today, but it was many decades ago. It was something that we asked, and somebody refused to usher in the church, and this was their basic argument. There's nowhere in the Bible that I'm commanded to have to wear a tie, a shirt and a tie, as an usher. Like, ushers would really be mentioned in the Bible, right? So, I said, no, there's no 
rule in the Bible that says that, but we require of our ushers that they wear a shirt and tie. By the way, this is not a dig against Bill. I don't even know if he has a tie on. Do you have a tie on or not? What? So, this is a smart man. They're nothing but hangman's nooses, let me tell you. Anyways, um, so I hate to be talking about Bill 20 years ago, but no, it wasn't him, okay? It wasn't him. So, so we stood outside. I remember the circle gathered. Maybe you remember this argument that I had with this individual. I don't know why you would, but I remember it. And my point was, it is not a rule in the Bible. It's a rule that we are asking for various reasons as elders that you wear it. If you don't want to wear a tie, you don't have to be an usher. If you want to be an usher, you have to wear a tie. If it's not in the Bible, that's legalism. It doesn't mean if you don't wear a tie and aren't an usher that you're backslidden. We have a lot of man-made rules in this facility. You do understand that, right? Sunday school's at 9.30. Is that in the Bible? What if we had a teacher that said, I don't see anywhere in the Bible where I have to teach at 9.30, so I'll come in at 10.15 every Sunday to teach my Sunday school class. Who are you to tell me what to do? One of, one of the man-made rules we observed this morning was communion first Sunday of the month. A legalist could actually say that if we didn't have communion on the first Sunday of the month, we're sinning. No, we're not sinning if we don't have communion on the first Sunday of the month, but it is a rule, and so if you want to partake of communion... It's an arbitrary rule because the Bible says whenever you observe it, this is when we arbitrarily decide to observe it, and you are commanded to partake of communion, so you need to observe it on the first Sunday of the month if you want to obey the command to have communion. So there are Christians that have minimalist views. I want exactly to know why I can't do these specific things if those specific things are not condemned in the Bible. And, of course, the list I gave to you last Sunday night. Where does it tell me in the Bible I can't live a certain place? Where does it tell me I can't marry a certain person, get a job a certain place? Where does it tell me that I can't go to the church that I want to? And the answer is nowhere in the Bible could it possibly tell you what church to go to, what job to take, or what place to live, because these places and churches didn't exist 2,000 years ago. A minimalist and lawless view of sin is if the specific context I'm living in is not condemned in the Bible. I'm free to do whatever I want. Wrong. That's number three. You can sin in your motivations while you do things that technically by themselves you're free to do. And this comes home to roost on the issue of suffering being necessary. So we saw last Sunday, number four, freedom versus enslavement, which is the same as optional versus necessity. We are not free to sin. Our motivations by what we do can definitely become sin, whether direct command or by application in the Bible. Remember, Paul said, all things are lawful to me, but I will not be put into bondage by anything. So there are issues that are free in Christ that we can do, but our motivations and reasons for doing them could be sinful. Next, under number four, we are not free to violate God's will for our lives. I mentioned the eight wills of God. So no, those eight wills of God constrain us. 
They are a massive mandate for all true believers to do the eight wills of God. And if I violate any one of them and don't repent of it, then I definitely can be called into question as to whether I'm a believer or not, according to Matthew 7, as I mentioned at the end of the sermon last Sunday night. The defining issue that demonstrates that one is a true believer is doing the will of God. And God has a will for us in various contexts. He wants us evangelizing in an unsaved work context. He wants us marrying a certain person that he would have to direct our steps to, and certainly in the Lord only. He wants us to spend money in a righteous and godly way, and he wants us to be in a church that he would have for us to serve with our gifts. There are a host of areas that seem at first glance that we're free to do when actually God's will starts to constrain us. And the only way we can get God's direction in our lives circumstantially is if we do the written will of God in those eight areas. Therefore, if I'm consistently following the written will of God in the Bible, I can trust my decision making in the non-written areas of my life that God will direct my steps. So, Number three, we are not free to violate God's guidance in our lives. And as your note sheet says, so that means we're not free. we do not have freedom to live anywhere we want, serve anywhere in any church, marry anyone we want, get a job anywhere we want, unless we first make sure we are godly and in his will. Only the godly believer's steps are directed. Only then that godly believer has the doors open and closed. And if I decide to start arbitrarily eliminate any of the eight wills of God, including this one, suffering, then there is no way I can trust open and closed doors and circumstantial guidance. As I mentioned last Sunday night, a host of Christians can ignore the written wills of God, and then when they get some type of door opening or closing, they assume it's from the Lord. When actually, as I said last Sunday night, it's from Satan. It's not from God. So, to conclude last Sunday night's sermon, we can only trust our decision-making when we are godly as defined by submitting consistently to the eight wills of God for every believer. How did I come up with eight? I just looked up the word will, W-I-L-L. Every time that word is used in the Greek in the New Testament. That took me a long time to do. Why would I do that? Because when Matthew 7 says you're only known as a true believer if you do the will of God, I want to know everywhere in the Bible where it says this is God's will for you. MacArthur wrote a little book years ago called God's Will Found. Well, he only found five. I found three more. So that's how I came up with eight. Eight passages where it says this is God's will for you. Simple. That becomes a massive mandate. You understand why, right? Because Christ said in Matthew 7, only those who do the will of God shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's a primary mark. So when passages say this is the will of God, I better do them. So you have to walk by the Spirit, do the will of God. Then he moves in and opens and closes doors. So both Satan and God are ready to open and close doors for the believer's life. And the naive and carnal believer says, any door that opens, any door that closes must be from God. No. Satan and God stand ready to open and close doors. 
How do I know when it's Satan versus God? Only when I'm doing consistently the eight wills of God can I trust God to direct me, as we saw in Proverbs 3 and Psalm 37 last Sunday night. Only then can I trust that God is the one directing my steps. If I'm carnal, don't even know what the eight wills of God are, don't even know where the scriptures are, and certainly have no clue how to fulfill those eight wills, then I jump into Satan's camp, and I can't trust any door opening and closing because it's not from God. It is circumstantial direction from Satan to shipwreck a believer. This is why before we open this second door even more so in verse 6 about the necessity, we have to come to the conclusion that I truly want the written will of God in my life no matter what it costs me, no matter how it plagues or tribulates me or pressures me. I am so obsessed with the wills of God in the Bible that is the only way I can have safe harbor that my steps are being directed. Otherwise, I can't trust myself and my decision-making or the circumstantial direction of my life is out the window. And if I take any one of the eight, they're monumental. You, can't, you don't win by majority. Well, I'm doing five of the eight. That's a majority win right there. No, it isn't. Any one of the eight wills of God, if they're shipwrecked in your life, the entire thing is shipwrecked. And I mentioned a fly getting in my ointment at the end of the sermon last Sunday night, so let's go to that now. In your note sheet, here is a fly in the proverbial ointment. The reason why so many Christians are out of the will of God is this. Please write this down. Here's the fly in the ointment. Most Christians think they are godly. When they are not, and thus make decisions for themselves. Most Christians think they are godly when they are not, and thus they make decisions for themselves, trusting that God is directing them. It starts like this. Well, I may not know all the wills of God. It's kind of extreme, I think. Wrong thinking. And uh, I may not know all the wills of God. I think I'm doing them. Wrong thinking. It's based on ignorance, I realize, but I trust God will direct me anyways. Wrong thinking. So I'm confident, living under mercy and grace, that even though I live for this world and I enjoy the things of this world and I'm contradicting the eight wills of God, I'm not even sure what they are. I'm trusting that God will overrule me. Powerful God that he is. And that all my steps will be directed by him. That fly is drowning in the ointment at that point. That is not how God directs us. If he's not going to speak to us verbally, and he doesn't, because 1 Peter says that, actually, tells us in verse 8 anyways, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now. So we haven't seen him. And later on he tells us that we haven't heard his voice in 1 John. So you don't hear his voice. You don't see him. The only way 
that I could possibly have him direct my steps in the areas not specifically mentioned in the Bible is I have to line up and think like he does. I have to have the mind of Christ. When I'm thinking in a godly way, then he rewards that by directing my steps. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The fly in the ointment is this. Hang on to this thought as you turn to 2 Corinthians 10. God does not unconditionally direct your steps. Okay? He doesn't. God does not unconditionally direct your steps. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's massive defense of his apostolic ministry to a Corinthian church that just had had enough of him. Verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when you are when you, toward you when absent. That was obviously one of the attacks. Paul is like a whipped puppy when he's around us, but when he writes to us, isn't he bold? Coward, coward. Verse 2, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walk according to the flesh. There were actually Corinthian believers who were led to Christ by Paul who considered him a carnal apostle. Walking according to the flesh is walking according to the sin. For though we walk in the flesh, and there's a perfect two-verse contrast using the same English word, same Greek word flesh, karnos. Context determines the exact same word means two different things within one sentence. Walking according to the flesh, the end of verse 2, is walking in sin and rebellion. Walking in the flesh, in verse 3, is referring to walking physically in the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh physically, we do not war. We're not a soldier according to the flesh. We do not fight our battles based on physical ability. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, physical flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses, spiritual fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up in the, against the knowledge of God. He's attacking the carnal minds of the Corinthians. And he says, we as apostles are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There it is, right there in verse 5. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. You can't trust the circumstances of your life unless you're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what it means to have the mind of Christ. And renouncing lofty, proud-filled things. And we punish, verse 6, all disobedience. So that's what it means to be in the will of God. You do the eight wills, then you are punishing disobedience. You are submissive to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're taking your thoughts captive under the Word of God. You don't trust your decision-making unless there is a biblical basis for it. We do not operate based on instinct. We do not have a false view of mercy and grace that God excuses our sin in order for us to disobey. Uh-uh. 
This is a powerful passage that shows us that we cannot ignore the wills of God in the Bible and expect God to direct our steps when we are in rebellion against the will of God. He gives us over to Satan just as he did the disciplined believer in 1 Corinthians 5 back in the first epistle where Paul handed him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So before a believer can trust the decision-makings that they're trying to make concerning those major issues that we've talked about last Sunday night and tonight, church, marriage, money, job, location, purchases, so forth, I have to review and know and submit and follow the eight wills of God to see if I'm obeying them. Don't know how to obey any one of the big eight? No mind of Christ. No mind of Christ? Then one is not in the will of God not in the will of God, then I can't trust any of my decision-making in the non-scriptural areas of my life because I'm in defiance against the scriptural. This is common sense. If God looks at us and sees us blowing off the Bible in eight major wills of God and refusing to study and submit and obey them, why would he direct such a rebel's life in the non-scriptural areas? He folds his arms and he lets the rebel believer flounder and drown in their own carnality as they think with self-deception supreme that God is directing my steps when he is not. There is no such thing in the Bible as the unconditional step direction of a carnal believer other than stepping him into the camp of Satan. It is amazing to me from young to old over the decades how I've heard so many believers with such confidence declare how God is guiding their lives and giving me the thoughts I need to follow. When knowing these individuals, I see that they are drowning in sin and unrepentant behavior and carnality, yet with great arrogance. They think that God is ignoring all their evil thinking and still pushing and guiding them the way they want. Hmm. God does not guide the steps of a carnal believer. He chastises the steps of a carnal believer. And many times he gives them over to their sin. Remember that with the quail? That's a perfect example of it. One of the benefits of Randy's class is that he's teaching us from the Old Testament many of the things that we learn in the New Testament. By example, we all know the quail. They wanted meat, right? So God gave them meat until they vomited, and then God slew them by the thousands. God will not let us get away with our lusts. He wants us to repent of them. This is why we have to stand outside this door, Mark number 2, no, 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 don't go through that door yet. You have to fully dedicate and yield yourself to the necessity of suffering. Fully give over to the will of God in that area. Next in your note sheet. Godly thinking places limits on our decisions. Godly thinking places limits on our decisions. A godly Christian doesn't say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not going to move anywhere I want. 
I'm not going to take a job anywhere I want. I'm not going to marry anybody I want. I'm not going to change churches based on carnal, selfish desires. I'm not going to purchase things anytime I want. Divorce from context, yeah, maybe there are issues in modern life that I could say that I could partake of, but I'm concerned about being in the will of God, not just in the written areas of life, but where he would direct me in the non-written areas. I have to be very careful. I have to have the mind of Christ. I have to confidently have the mind of Christ. That means I have to have the eight wills of God. Safe, spirit-filled, submissive, sanctified, suffering, filled with wisdom, living in satisfaction and serving the Lord with my gifts. It's astounding to me that somebody as a professed Christian could completely dump these mountain Everest peaks of mandates of obedience in the Bible and then just glibly think, oh, he's guiding me. Mm. The arrogance of that frightens me at times. Christians shouldn't be so concerned about the non-biblical issues of life. Place to live, jobs, marriage, changing churches or not, selfish desires, money, singlehood versus marriage, bad neighborhoods, bigger church, smaller church, spouse, all the... Christians are so obsessed with those things. Why isn't Christians... Why aren't Christians first completely obsessed with the mandates of the Bible? And then saying... I'm not doing anything in any of these non-biblical areas until I get my act together in the scriptures. Instead, uh, I'm not worried about the scriptural areas, but uh, God, God's guiding me in all these other areas. Just in the area of one of the wills of God serving, just as an example at the bottom, the two driving forces of all our decisions Concerning service. Now, I'm just giving you an example at the bottom. The two driving forces, just for that, one of the eight wills of God, is God's will that you serve. Which, by the way, if you wonder, where's that one? I'm just giving you this free, free of charge. Look at 1 first, first Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. This is just arbitrary. It's not because this is the one I have an axe to grind on. I'm just choosing it arbitrarily. 1 Corinthians 12, I think it is. Yes, 1 Corinthians 12. Look at verse 11. This is a bomb going off in the New Testament that has been abandoned wholesale like the worst plague you can imagine by almost every professed believer in modern history. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, But one and the same Spirit works all these things. What things? The various gifts that are mentioned here. Distributing to each one. Each one is a believer. Individually as he what? So is it God's will? To have spiritual gifts? Free to just come sit, listen, and leave, do what I want, not worried about whether I'm in the will of God on serving with my spiritual gifts? You ask your average believer, are you serving with your spiritual gifts? The one person that used to attend here, I do it my way. I said, well, it's not, God frankly isn't concerned about your way, Frank Sinatra. I didn't say Frank Sinatra, but I was thinking it. This is not about your will, what you want to do. Look at verse 11. 
to each one individually just as he wills. So that means I have to find what my gift is that he gave me. Not, well, I'd like to do this with my life. And that always begs the question in counseling, well, well, how do I find what my gifts are? Well, yeah, that should have been asked way back when I got converted. And we're asking that question now? That's a baby question. We should know scripturally how we find our spiritual gifts. The fact that we wouldn't even know how to do that shows the defiance. Scary. Free to buy a chocolate bar? Yeah. Free to paint a room? Sure. Free to go on vacation? Yeah. Free to watch TV? Yep. But you better be careful with even those four things. Oh, come on. You mean I could be in danger of buying a chocolate bar, painting a room, going on vacation, watching TV? Yeah. Yeah, you could. Yeah, you could. Help me out here. I just mentioned four kind of crazy things. How could it ever be wrong, right? Four how could it ever be wrong things. Buy a chocolate bar. Let's each remember one of these. I'm going to give all of you four. Okay, so who wants to remember the chocolate bar one? Just say, I remember chocolate bar. Okay. Uh, who wants to remember the paint the room? Okay, there you go. And who's going to remember vacation? Or let's just say day off, okay? Who wants to remember that? Day off or vacation? Sylvia? Okay. And number four, watching TV. Who wants to remember that one? Sue. Okay. What's number one? Huh? Chocolate bar. Thank you, Nicole. Come on, how can it be wrong eating a chocolate bar? Now, I'm not asking her, I'm asking all of you. Are we free to eat chocolate bar? A chocolate bar? Yeah, but when could it go bad? When? Gluttony. Gluttony. When do I start gluttonizing? I know the answer to that one, I'm not sure you do. And fat doesn't make glutton, skinny make non-glutton. Okay, are we clear on that? Would uh, two Hershey bars tonight be gluttony? Three? Four? What if you're a Somalian war refugee? Would one chocolate bar, and you're starving to death on the side of a road, would one chocolate bar be gluttony? Hasn't eaten in days. Two? Three? Four? So now our legalism is kicking in and shipwrecking our ability to judge sin as we assess chocolate barism sins based on quantity, when the Bible would never condemn quantity as a mark of gluttony. Because how would you know? Two? Two and a half? Three? What's next after gluttony? Paint a room. Nothing wrong with that, right? Painting a room's nothing. How could that ever be sin? Well, what if the painting of the room 
is part of a purchase somebody makes of a house where they expand the size of their house and now they have to paint the rooms. Well, there's nothing wrong with buying a bigger house. But what if it's a single mom who decided, Christian mom who decided to buy a bigger house in a more expensive area? And now because her mortgage is so much bigger, she's painting multiple rooms in a larger house that she's bought, and she's a Christian mother and has to work to pay it off. And Titus 2, 3 to 5 says mothers are to be keepers of the home. Well, wait a minute. What if there's no husband? That's a good question. That's a good question. If there's no husband, now she's stuck. Of course, the Bible says the church is supposed to enter in and help those type of women out. church doesn't do that. The churches can barely pay their own bills, right? So that's out the window. So now you've got a whole field of how does a Christian mother who's a single be a keeper of the home when she can't even afford to live? Well, that would probably mean she has to live as poor as she can so she can be home with her kids as much. So what would she be doing buying a bigger house and painting more rooms? She may have to work, but maybe God would provide through others or in a poorer area or a smaller home so she could obey the mandate in Titus 2, 3 to 5 to be the keeper of the home. Do you see the danger of our thinking and decision-making in such innocent areas as that? Go, whoa, 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 this is getting complicated. You bet it is because our sin natures are complicated. What's number three? Vacation day off. Now we need to be careful about vacations. We know the Pisanos may be listening as going on vacation. There's nothing sinful with that, okay? So we know a vacation isn't sinful. When could a day off or vacation be wrong? When could it be wrong? Anybody? You're afraid to get a wrong answer is what you're doing right here, right now, huh? We can play the same numbers game with vacations. Well, two, two weeks a year is, is not sin, but four weeks, six weeks is sin. All right, okay, well, six weeks is sin. If I have six weeks off vacation, that's sin. Or eight weeks, ten weeks, that's, oh, that's definitely sin. It's wrong for any Christian to have three months off vacation. Really? That's like one to four chocolate bars to me. There's deeper issues here than the number of hours off or weeks off, right? What would be the deeper issues potentially? Don't know? This keeps you from doing the Lord's will, exactly. Especially with that one we wrote down at the bottom. Consistently and regularly serving with one's gifts, right? What was the last one? That's an easy one, right? It's just you got to watch, get, you need to not watch trash. Well, what's trash? Well, if you hear swear words, that's trash. You should never hear swear words. Well, wait, I hear swear words all the time when I'm working. On my job. Bad scenes. Sex scenes. Well, yeah, that's a given. That's easy. Is that all that would be wrong with watching TV? How about a cure for anxiety? 
And you're doing nothing but watching an old show from the 1950s. Using TV as a replacement for joy. An addiction to entertainment. A way to get lost and forget your troubles. That's just as bad a sin as using TV to watch trash. In four areas that I just picked at random, do you understand how deeply entrenched into the mind of Christ you have to be before you can trust any of your motivations? And how foolish it is to just say, buying a chocolate bar isn't sin. Where in the Bible does it say, thou shalt not eat a chocolate Hershey's bar? Painting room isn't sin. Come on, that's legalism. Having fun with vacations. Give me a break. Nowhere in the Bible it says I can't go on vacation. See you next year, Pastor John. My point here is, folks, the only way to make proper decisions in the non-biblical areas is a mind that is captured by the Word of God. Massive saturation. Prayer. Dependence and a healthy distrust of your own ability to make decisions. So, on the back side, we're not free to violate God's will for us, nor free to destroy God's guidance. That's given. You're not free to sin. So, we really can't live anywhere we want, go to church anywhere we want, eat until we have cardiac arrest if we want. Take any job we want, leave the job we're in, marry someone, anyone we want. No, 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 no. God has a plan for our lives that he wants to direct our steps. So, lastly this evening, what does this have to do with Mark number two of suffering? Fill it in number five. Many believers at much cost to their spiritual health, reject the necessity of suffering for Christ, believing they are free to avoid it, thus bringing great shame upon themselves as they miss the calling and will of God upon their lives. Again, many believers at much cost to their spiritual health reject the necessity of suffering for Christ, believing they are free to avoid it, thus bringing great shame upon themselves as they miss the calling and willing of God, will of God upon their lives. Imagine this in conclusion. If it is actually possible to sin buying a chocolate bar, and it is, or not sin buying a chocolate bar, or sin painting a room, or having a bigger house, how could it not be sin to avoid one of the major direct confrontational commands of the Bible that you're to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? If I could so screw up my life and mess it up in the area of chocolate, imagine how I can shipwreck on a basic command of the Bible saying I'm free in Christ to avoid all suffering. If I can't figure out when I'm sinning with food or painting a room, or watching TV, how could I ever endure suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ? Oh, oh, 
I'm getting a migraine from this. How do I deal with all these things then? I, I can't do anything. I better not even put my hands down. I may be sinning. That's the mark of a carnal baby Christian who doesn't realize all God asks us to do is submit to the eight wills of God consistently and the Spirit of God transforms our minds to think correctly in every situation of life and to trust His direction. And that is as alien as Klingons in Romulan space in Star Trek. Never going to happen. Christians just don't think this way. That's why everything gets so messed up. How did my life get so trashed? Why is God not helping me? Because we're not willing to go through the doors of God's will and do the hard, hungering work of being saturated in the will of God over a long period of time. It transforms my thinking, changes my convictions and outlook on life, and then allows God to then move in and take our hands and direct our steps because he sees us in our minds that in all those eight ways we're completely submitted to his lordship. Otherwise, we're cut loose from a boat cut from the pier and floating out into life, acting like unbelievers, arrogant, unteachable, faking it and pretending as Christians and destroying our lives, and at the end of the day, blaming God for it. I'm the one in my boat with the rope attached to the pier of God, and I'm sawing that rope and cutting it with my carnal blade of thinking, and when my boat drifts away from the pier of God's will, I shout back to God, Why have you forsaken me? Thank you, Father, for your word. Do your work in us as you see fit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.